There's a way in which the poet characterizes him as playing off of a human weakness that the Green Knight knows is there. He knows what Gowan is going to do, and he's asking him to do it. He kneels down for Gowan. He tilts his head to the side, exposing his neck and saying, okay, go ahead. You're listening to Classical Etc., a show from the Memoria Press Podcast Network, where we offer an in-depth look at the philosophy, culture, and heart of the Memoria Press family. Now, here's your host, Shane Saxon. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the podcast. I got a chance to sit down with Kyle Yonke, a high school literature teacher at Highlands Latin School and an author of a few literature guides for Memoria Press. We got a chance to talk through one of his favorite poems, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, a pretty awesome poem from the Middle Ages. And he explored some different elements of the themes and aspects of the poem that he loves and talked about how he teaches that poem to his students. Uh, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kyle Yonke. So Kyle, around here people love J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah, really? Yeah. And a lot of people love him just for the the trilogy, you know, obviously. Um, But things about Tolkien that have stuck out to me are two things. One, he was responsible for the Jonah translation in the Jerusalem Bible kind of interesting. But then also, one of his most famous edited texts you probably do know is Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, as long as, as well as Sir Orpheo and the Pearl. And that to me says that Tolkien saw something special about this book. I've heard you say that you also find it very special. In your classes, you teach it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I have taught it, um, not this year, but I've taught it before. Okay. And I mean, what do you like about it? Yeah, and I I like everything about it. It's so it's a perfect work of literature. I, I really think it is. It's an example of um master writing, like a, a, a master writer giving his utmost to a text. Um a master I, writer who we know nothing about. Yes, yeah, except that he was a master writer. We can we know that from his text. It's clear. Um and I would compare it to uh something like Moby Dick, which is another novel or another work that I love. So not saying anything bad about Moby Dick, but anyone who's read it, um, I, with that novel, there's a lot more there than I think people give it credit for. Um, it's often criticized for digressing and, and this sort of thing. And there's a lot more order and structure to it, if you look closely. But there are gaps and there are holes. And I think anyone who is a fan of Moby Dick has to acknowledge it is very long. Um, and he does... He does tend to give a lot of examples and to and to go off on a topic and then you you know allow that topic to take him in another direction, um, which a lot of people like and there's something to that. But the Gowan poet is so when I say masterpiece, I mean the opposite of that. It is it is perfectly wrought, perfectly structured, not overly. It's still there's a lot of good humor in it. There's a lot of jokes. There's a lot of excitement and adventure. Um, but each each moment, each little part leads into the next in sure. this perfect stream. And you feel like that's accessible to students even in translation? Because you guys read a an English text, right? Or a modern English text? Yeah. Yeah. I think you can see it in translation because it has everything to do with the imagery and characterization and the story structure, which all of those things that that come through. So like going to the structure a little bit, what do you mean by that? Because I mean the plot seems kind of simple and there are parts mm-hmm. of it that seem almost redundant just on the on the surface the the three 
hunts, for example, like what is actually going on there? Well, it is redundant. Yeah. So, so it, it, it's, well, I wouldn't say redundant. I'd say repetitive, okay. right? Um, which is the positive version. Um, I, I mean, it's a frame narrative. There's a, there's a story within a story. Um, and I think, I mean, this would be, this would, uh, be jumping ahead a little bit, but, but part three, um, is, is the story within the wider story that you get in parts one through four. So you get the, the, challenge of the green knight to the court of king arthur you get gowan's response and i think the poem has everything to do with how gowan responds to the green knight's challenge the choice that he makes there um which to the reader seems like a logical rational response it seems to make sense and the poet uses that story within a story when gowan is in in the castle of of um bertillac um as as a, as a means of cluing the reader in to the flaw that, that occurred in Gowan's original choice. Sure. So it's much more evident to see the flaw in the story within the story, and that informs the larger structure, the, the, the larger story overall, and brings us to the resolution of the poem. So. A lot of people, it seems like, really key in on Sir Gowan's chivalry. And do you think that plays into it? Or I've heard you maybe say that that maybe doesn't play as prominent a role as people think think it should in the play. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it, it plays a role and, and Gowan being a knight, um, it, it certainly is present and it informs the choices that he makes, but, but I don't in, in so far as that is a feature of a culture that is in the past. Um, I think the poem goes beyond that. Hmm. Meaning the poem is very relevant to any culture throughout time, just as relevant to us now as it was then. It is using chivalry as its framework, um, but I wouldn't say, uh, it, you know, insofar as I, I want, I want to see what this poem has to say to me, you know, today. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's the main thing. So what are some of those connections that you land with students? I mean, are they able to to see it pointing to them? Or? I think so. Yeah. So, so Gowan's choices again, I mean, the, 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 the age old, you know, most useful question to a literature teacher is that question of, of should he, shouldn't he. Right. Sure. Um, so when Gowan, for instance, accepts the, uh, the girdle from Lady Bertilak, um, should he keep it or should he hand it over? It's a really strange aspect of the story that yeah. he makes this compromise. Mm -hmm. Do your mm -hmm. students struggle with that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's always a discussion. It's always split. You have some students that are arguing, um, and, and it's always, you know, there's always a tone of the students know what he's supposed to do and you have to dig a little deeper to get to what are they actually thinking he, what are they actually feeling he should do? Um, cause they know he should hand it over. He should keep his word. Right. But if you dig a little deeper, usually the class splits up between those who say like, well, but he's going to die. You know, that that's his only chance. That's his only lifeline. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it leads, it leads to, to really good discussion and it gets them, it gets them passionate about the text. Like that, that's the avenue, uh, I think into the, into the, the text relevance. It gets them passionate about it because you're asking them to decide things that to a lot of readers are just seem ambiguous and they're having to really yes. take a stand one way or the other. Yes.
It seems like you've also talked a lot about it being a distinctly Christian poem, even though it mm. seems like so other than the Christianity that we kind of know. Would you yeah. flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, well, okay. So so this is where um, I think we go back to part one and the original choice that Gowan makes, which to any student, if you're if you're teaching them and you and you look at the choice that he makes, it it makes perfect sense. It's a perfectly logical choice. So set that up a little bit. Describe the okay. scene, like yeah. him coming in. Yeah, but yeah, but we'll, we'll circle around to the, the uh, circle back around to the Christian idea because I do think that's it. That is the whole point. Sure. Um, let me just say quickly, and then then we'll we'll get into part one. That um, that Christian aspect of Gowan being caught in a situation of his own making. Yeah. That he there is no way out of that situation, and his life is at stake. He is doomed. Sure. That should be. I mean, that has all sorts of resonance with with the Christian story. Yeah. And with with our experience as human beings, um, so that's kind of where we're going. That's where I think the text is going. But the original situation, so so you know, it's, it's the court of King Arthur. Um, one other thing I love about this this uh, text is that it's, it's a Christmas story, and it's it's heartily and thoroughly a Christmas story. And it's as everything a Christmas story should be. It's 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 deadly serious in its situation, but it's also full of humor, um, good humor. It's, it's merry. Um, so, uh, so, so, Court of King Arthur, and King Arthur is asking for an adventure, and the Green Knight walks in um, with an adventure. And, and the situation is, the, the Green Knight, um, we'll come back to the detail that he's green, but that's a feature of the text. He's green from head to toe, and, and students always ask, does that mean he's wearing green? And you have to point out the passages and say, no, he is green, and his horse is green, um, you know, physically green. Uh, but then we move on, and and his situation is he walks in, he's wearing no armor at all. He is uh, carrying a holly branch in one hand, and he's carrying a huge, monstrous axe in the other. And he offers the game, uh, the challenge to the court, if any man is brave enough, you step up, right? And and he's a, he's a big guy, too. The Green Knight is physically intimidating. But if anyone is brave enough among the court of King Arthur, and he mocks him a little bit to get him a little irritated... Right? And he says, anyone step up and I will, I will stand still and take whatever blow you can you know, deliver to me. So long as you agree that in one year we'll meet up again, right? you'll, come to, you'll come to my home turf and I'll uh, be able to deliver a blow to you. So it's, it's a blow for a blow, right? Very simple. Um, yeah. And so this is, so, so uh, Gowan volunteers, instead of King Arthur accepting the challenge, Gowan volunteers, and this is part of his chivalry, to, to do this for his for his lord and master. Um, but they, they step aside for a second, and Arthur gives him advice. And Arthur tells Gowan, um, basically, cut his head off, and then you'll be able to stand his blow in a year. And this this is the perfect rationality of, of Gowan's choice, and, and this, is what, this is what Gowan does. The perfect rationality is it makes perfect sense. That that's that is what anyone would do in that situation. Is all right. So we'll use that giant axe, which is not the only thing that the Green Knight is holding in his hand, but we'll use that giant axe that is offered, and we'll cut his head off. And then in a year, I'll be able to go find him and and take the blow that he'll be delivered to me, but which will be nothing because he'll be dead. All right. Now, it's logical. The the part that they're missing or the consideration that they're not taking into account is that he's green, that this is not a normal situation. This is, this is not, perhaps this is not a situation that is governed by the rules of, of human logic. It's one of those things that is so out there that I think your average reader or student is like, yeah, he's green. And this is an ancient poem. Sure. He's green, but 
Right. They have to register that. Yeah. And they, and see this, and this, so it's, it's a teaching opportunity too, because this is, it's one of those moments in the, in a text where that's where it becomes universal. That's where it becomes no longer only specific to one culture in the past. Cause we make this mistake all the time. Students make this mistake all the time where they assume, um, that, that whatever the text describes was a normal thing to the culture in the past and that we're different now, which basically means that they don't really take it seriously and it, and it doesn't mean much to them. Right. And you have to remind them that, no, people being green in the past was just as unusual as it is now. So really, the situation that the text is getting into is a, is a situation for, for all times, right? Um, yeah, and so, and so, I mean, it, it asks the students to consider Gowan's choice and to con- consider, you know, what he's doing and, and the... It's that part that he's missing, that that this is this is not a normal situation. Yeah. So then you connect that back to your students' Christianity, your own Christianity as you read it, your own faith. How do you make mm-hmm. that leap? Because right, it's a universal story, but yeah. you think there's also some transcendent aspect to it? Um yes, absolutely. Um, but I, I think that that's where I mean you have to jump ahead to the end to see to see the resolution of all this. Um but the, the situation plays out. So the uh, the Green Knight basically stands up from receiving his blow, picks up his head that the people have been, you know, kicking around under the tables. And I didn't add that. It's in the text. And this is what I mean by humor, right? Um, deadly serious situation, but it's, it's also kind of funny. Uh, he picks up his head, puts it under his arm, and says, I'll see you in a year, and walks out. And you get this wonderful line at the beginning of, of part two that basically says, so King Arthur and Gowan, you have your adventure, um, your hands full of it. So this idea that you got more than you bargained for here. Um, and, and you're, you know, you're in deep, right? Um, and this is where, so, I mean, this, this is where Gowan's guilt, uh, you know, the guilt of his original choice comes into play and, and, you know, we're jumping the gun a bit to call it guilt, but that's really what it is that he's, he's gotten himself into a situation that is, that costs him his life. And he's gotten himself into that situation through violence, which is, I think is, is the focus of, of the text uh, he chose the path of violence rather than the path of mercy. Um, and, and, you know, he, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. So, you know, this is this is the morality that, that's worked into the structure of the poem. And there was a way out, but are you, are you holding off on saying what that was or does that come back up later in the book? You mean the way out in the original situation? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think I remind the students it's just a blow for a blow. It doesn't specify yeah. you kill me and then I'll get a chance to kill you. It just says, strike me. And he's holding an axe, right? And he also, I mean, in the Green Knight, he's, he's begging for it too. He, he's, there's a way in which the poet characterizes him as playing off of a human weakness that the Green Knight knows is there. He knows what Gowan is going to do, and he's asking him to do it. He kneels down for Gowan. He tilts his head to the side, exposing his neck and saying, okay, go ahead, right? But despite all that, it's perfectly logical, it's just as logical to say that Gowan could have taken the holly branch and just, I don't know, you know, tapped him on the head and said, there you go, I'll see you in a year, which would be a risk for Gowan because um, then he could receive a, a worse blow according to the game. But that would be, you know, that would be the chivalrous thing to do. Sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So then you think that gets tied back in with the sequence of the hunts as well as how it yes. is resolved at the end? So in that situation, it's much easier to see Gowan's guilt because he makes a second game, a game, you know, a game within a game. And anytime, anytime you have a frame narrative, 
Um, which, you know, frame narrative, it can be used just decoratively. But when it's used well, it is one of the, I mean, it's a masterstroke. When it's used to its full potential, it's one of the, the you know, the, the most beautiful things an author can do. Um, and anytime, you know, when Gowan starts his second game, that's the author reminding us of the situation that he's in. You know, dear reader, do you remember what happened before? Let's take another look at that. Here's another game. And this time the game is um, Bertilak is a hunter. He's going to go out into the, into the fields and forests and hunt. And Gowan is going to stay in the castle. And Bertilak says, whatever I win will be yours in a day um, when I get back to the castle. And then whatever you win in a day, spending time in my castle, will be mine. Sure. So we'll just we'll trade whatever we win in that day. Um, and then you get the whole scene. And this is, this is where chivalry comes into play. Um, and, you know, a lot of people spend a whole lot of time talking about um, uh, chivalry towards towards a woman because Bertilak's wife then uh, she, she shows up in the early morning in Gowan's bedchamber um, and is essentially seducing him, asking him, you know, to, to or asking if she can join him in his bed. Right. Um, and so you do get I mean, and that is an aspect of the, I'm not I'm not underplaying that. That's definitely, you know, the, the chivalry towards a woman is an aspect of um, of the poem. But I think perhaps more importantly, the chivalry towards one's host, sure. that relationship between guest and host is every bit as, as significant in that scene and then also has the added feature of connecting to the, to the previous game. Because when the Green Knight walks into King Arthur's court, he's a guest. And there is some sort of relationship between guest and host that chivalry also speaks to. Yeah, so tie that to the hunts specifically, because that's a little bit mystifying, I think, to see the different animals. What do you think that the poet is going for with the the series of three hunts that go that happen kind of alternatively with the three scenes with the uh, the host's wife? Yeah, right. So you have this this alternating effect, you know, three days, and you have the the deer is the first game that that the host brings back, um, and then the boar, and then the fox. Um, there's meaning in each one. I think you can comment overall in them as well. It's a great, it's a wonderful moment of humor in the text um, because as we're thinking about the game um, that Gowan is in, the original game, where he's basically going to, to, to face his, his end, um, as we're thinking about that, we're getting very detailed and visceral and violent descriptions of animals being killed and torn limb from limb and, and cut up. And, you know, the whole time we're thinking... It's like it, it's a foreshadowing. It's an anticipating of, of, you know, Gowan, you remember the situation you're in? This is what's coming, right? This is, this is coming your way. Um, so, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's just a part in, this, in the story that's a lot of fun. Uh, but also, so, so Gowan, he remains faithful. And you get, there's another element of humor that, again, this is not normal back in, you know, back in the day. And it's, it's just as abnormal then as it is now. And students laugh at it, and they should. Where what Gowan wins from, from the lady, so he, he, uh, um, repels her advances, um, but she does ask him for a kiss, right? And this he grants, as I think part of his, he's trying to strike a balance between I must repel her advances, and yet I must still show her honor and respect as, as, as a lady. And I don't want, you know, I don't want to scandalize her with, with my um, dismissal of her. And so part of that is, is that, I mean, the kiss is, I think, his, um, you know, Gowan's way of balancing, balancing that, still showing respect to his host. Um, but not crossing a line. So when Bertilak returns, Gowan receives, you know, the first time the deer, and then the second time the boar, and each time Bertilak receives from Gowan um, a kiss, 
And, you know, students giggle and you tell them, yeah, you should. It's funny, right? That he walks up and he kisses his host and his host reacts as though it's funny. He's surprised, shocked by it um, and laughs at it. Um, but yeah, and, and, and until you get to the third, the third one where the lady, uh, Lady Bertilak, um asked this time, it's, it's one kiss and then two kisses and then three kisses. And she adds to that a green girdle that she says the wearer of this, whoever is wearing this, this green girdle, and it's green, which is important. We haven't talked about color in the poem yet, but color is very important. Um, whoever wears this green girdle can withstand any blow. And Gowan, and that's where it comes full circle. And we realize, okay, this is, this is Gowan's ticket out. The situation that he's in, he can get out of it. All he has to do is break his oath to his host, is, is ruin the second game, right? So there's a little bit of, it is a way out, but it's not a way out because he's going to get right back into it, um, you know, through lying. The first time it was violence, the second time it's lying. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's, you know, sort of his ticket out. And that's where, you know, there's, there's a little pause in the text where we consider what should Gowan do? And what he does is he keeps the girdle. Nice. So then you mentioned that color comes up over yeah. and over again. Mm -hmm. Flesh that out a little bit because obviously we talked about green as a significant color. Yeah. You also talked about this being a Christmas poem. Uh huh. Um, yeah. Flesh that out. So, and this, yeah, this, it's so good. And this is what I mean. It's perfectly wrought. It's it's a perfectly told story because every single one of its elements just fits in with the rest. It all harmonizes and all just runs smoothly. Um, the color. The color is what connects us to 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 idea thoughts and ideas that that you know fleshed out fully. Um, it's it's the means by which we arrive at the conclusion that Gowan's first choice was a mistake, um, was a was a flaw in his reasoning or flaw in his logic, because the color green comes to symbolize now with the, with the green girdle and with the green knight who apparently you could, he can withstand any blow. It comes to symbolize. Um, life beyond what is natural. So, you know, life that is greater than what we experience in, in, well, in nature, right? Um, which means, so it, it's beyond our rationality. It's beyond what we can see in nature and therefore judge rationally or even scientifically. Whatever green symbolizes, it, it symbolizes whatever is beyond that. Something magical, something, you know, deeper, more profound than nature. Right, so we see it with the Green Knight, and you kind of get this feeling of, you know, maybe we should have asked ourselves why he's green, and that's not normal, that's not natural, it's not scientific. And then we see it with the girdle as well, um, and Gowan is sort of trying to take advantage of that by, by keeping it for himself. But that's just, so those two bits of evidence, I think, I mean, to me, kind of tell me that I'm on the right track with thinking that this is extra natural. And then the opposite end of that, the other Christmas color, red, um, which, by the way, are both colors... Uh, that you see in the holly bush, right? You, you know, like the green holly bush and then the sort of the spray of red circles that are, are the berries, um, which, of course, this is the natural side of things. This is Gowan's realm and the way Gowan thinks about the world, which has everything to do, apparently, based on his actions, with bloodshed. So you get this image, and, I mean, it's, it's, it's violent, but you can picture it where you almost get a recreation of a holly bush when Gowan cuts off the green knight's head because you get green with a a spray of red, right? Um, and I think that's sort of the, the you know the the writer nodding at the reader. Um, yeah, so so I, I don't know. I, I feel like this might be a a, a point um, 
a point to jump ahead to the fourth part. Yeah. Because what, what really makes this a Christmas story is, is when you see the, the resolution of all this and how this all comes together and how the colors, uh, you know, what the colors represent. But part three leaves Gowan basically with this, with, in this situation, with this formula of, of self-preservation means betrayal. That, that's the situation he's in. To, to preserve myself, I have to betray another. Um, and that is no different from the first situation. To preserve my own life, to not take the risk of hitting, showing him mercy and he not showing me mercy, you know, to preserve my own life, I have to kill him first, which is, has everything to do, it's the whole human condition. That, that's all of human history expressed in, in one little image, one little choice, right? Um, self-preservation means betrayal. All right, so, so he commits the second betrayal. Gowan does by keeping keeping the belt again self-preservation I have to betray my host and he leaves and he goes off to face the green knight and it's it's a long elaborate scene Gowan walks into the place where the the green knight is supposed to be it's this eerie creepy kind of place and he hears this sound and as he's listening to the sound he realizes it's the sound of someone sharpening a huge axe on a grindstone and again it's just I mean the the, the writer is having fun right that this is not I don't know. I mean, this is, you know, it's written in the Middle Ages. You get the idea that, like, Middle Ages, you know, medieval authors are sort of pedantic and boring yeah. and dry. And it's just there's nothing dry about this poem. Um, he's having fun with the reader. Now you hear that grating sound. And then the Green Knight comes out, um, and we get a repetition of the hunt in terms of the, the sort of the one, two, three uh, formula. Um, because basically he has, he has Gowan kneel down on the ground, and he takes a swing, and Gowan flinches. Right. And the Green Knight stops before he hits Gowan's neck. He stops and says, whoa, 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 no, hold on a second. You said that you'd accept a blow from me. Right. Um, and I didn't flinch when you when you, you know, made your blow, when you cut off my head, I didn't flinch a bit. So we're going to try this again and you're not going to flinch. Um, and so it, it happens again and Gowan doesn't flinch. But this time the Green Knight stops again um, and he, uh, you know, he's toying with Gowan, mocking him. And again, he's doing the same thing that he did in King Arthur's court, where he's sort of riling Gowan up and, and you know, trying to, you know, get his goat a little bit. Um, and Gowan says, just, just do it, right? Get it done. And I won't flinch. So Gowan holds still, and the Green Knight brings the axe down and just barely nicks his neck. There's a little, little mark on his neck, right? And Gowan leaps up, draws his sword. He's ready to go immediately. He says, that's it. That's it. You, like, you hit me. The axe hit me. We're done, right? And if you want more, I'm going to fight you with my sword. So immediately, I mean, Gowan is still, he's still in that mindset of, of bloodshed. I've got to fight. I've got to take out my opponent. That's the only way to, to stay safe. Um, at which point it is revealed that the Green Knight all along was you know, the, the host of the castle. He was Sir Bertilak. He is under an enchantment. Uh, and he tells Gowan that the first two faints, so the first time, you know, the first two times that I, that I went at your neck, that, that, that is for the first two times that you kept your promise. That you you kept that that compact you know that between a, a guest and host, and the third time the nick on your neck, that's for the time that you betrayed me when you kept the girdle, which by the way, we never find out if that would have spared Gowan's life or not, and it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. right? It's 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 a, it's a tale about Gowan's choice, not really about you know the magical situation that he's in. Um, so basically, what what happens? What the Green Knight does with Gowan? is what Gowan should have done in the first place, right? Is, is, is showing mercy, yeah. right? 
Um, yeah, mercy, mercy, which lies outside of nature and outside of our reason and outside of our science, right? Gowan's logic tells him not to be merciful. Um, and here's the punchline. So here's where this becomes just the ultimate Christmas story. Um, is you get that little bit of bloodshed, and it's it's a price to be paid. Gowan keeps the green girdle. The green knight lets him have it. You know, he goes goes his own way, and he goes back to the court of King Arthur, and he's telling his tale. And when he comes to the part where he broke his oath, remember back to chivalry, right? When he broke his oath to his host, um, he blushes, and the text says that he blushes, and it's this beautiful artistic appearance of the color red in the text, associating shedding blood with guilt and shame as as it should be so the ultimate expression of you know the color red in the text is shame and the, the shame that is on mankind for following our own reason for following our own science thinking we know what the only option is um, when in fact we don't know what the only option is and we don't know what the outcome is going to be and then the color green what what happens in king arthur's court is arthur sort of makes a proclamation that no gowan you went on this great adventure. You're a good knight, and and every, you know the reader's on Gowan's side. He he did make a mistake, but both I think the reader and the writer are thoroughly on Gowan's side, right? It's an understandable mistake. It's a human mistake. In fact, it's a mistake that we've all made as humans. And so Arthur proclaims that no, that this green girdle, yeah, you will wear it on your arm, but you'll wear it as a badge of honor. And what's more, every knight in my court will also wear a green, you know, a green sash on their arm. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll turn this into a badge of honor. And you get an image there of mercy, um, turning shame into laughter or turning shame into honor. I wish that we could explore those themes for the rest of this afternoon, but unfortunately we've run out of time. But Kyle, thanks for Do walking through it. Thing? You have time for one, one thing. One quick little punch on I'm sorry, but I got to say, so Christmas trees right? Christmas trees, the evergreen. I really do think that a student coming out of reading this text should have a new appreciation for a Christmas tree and what it represents. The thing that, you know, in the winter of natural winter, scientific winter, the winter of death, violence, that the world that mankind has created with the choices that we've made, right? You have a symbol of something that is evergreen, that remains living with extra natural life. And that's why this is a Christmas story. Well, there you have it. Yeah. Thanks, Kyle. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Memoria Press podcast. If you like what you heard and you would like to hear more, please consider subscribing to our YouTube channel, Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. My name is Shane Saxon, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press podcast network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education.